Well, good morning again. I invite you to take your Bibles and open to the Gospel of Mark and chapter 15. With the warmer weather and all the rain, it's allergy season again. And uh, before the first service, I was plopping a uh, throat lozenge in my mouth. And one of the uh, one of our brothers, uh, David, came up and said to me, he said, you know, it reminds me of a story of a pastor. And, and uh, I, I remembered the story as he told me. He said, there's this pastor who... Every morning before he got up to speak, he'd drop a throat lozenge in his mouth, and and that was his timer. When the throat lozenge was gone, it was time to wrap up the sermon. One day he reached down in his pocket, pulled out a, a throat lozenge, popped it in his mouth. What he didn't realize, he'd grabbed a button. He's still preaching today. Uh, <laughs> so, I threatened to get some buttons and... <laughs> so you say he doesn't need help. Don't egg him on. Well, we're in a series looking at the seven sayings of Christ Jesus from the cross, often called Jesus' last words, the seven last words. And so far we have studied three of these sayings. The first, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. The second, Speaking to the criminal next to him, he said, Today you will be with me in paradise. The third saying from the cross, as Jesus looks down and sees his mother, and he says, Mary, behold your son, pointing to or or indicating John, the apostle John. and, And to John he says, Behold your mother. Today we come to the fourth saying here in Mark chapter 15. Obviously, none of the Gospels have all seven of the sayings. Uh, different ones have different sayings. And so we kind of have to jump around from Gospel to Gospel, which gives us the opportunity to, to get uh, the different perspectives of each Gospel, from each Gospel of the crucifixion. The first two sayings that were, that were said, and most likely the third, were all spoken between nine and noon. You recall that Jesus was nailed to the cross about nine in the morning. It appears that the first three sayings happened between nine and noon and then that Jesus goes silent on the cross from noon until three. And the final four sayings all occur just in the span of a very short period of time, maybe 5, 10, 15 minutes, half hour, we don't know how long, but all seem to be just in a very short time right before Jesus dies around 3 in the afternoon. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each one, tell us that something very dramatic, very eerie, very supernatural occurred in those intervening hours between noon and three o'clock, between the first three sayings and the last four sayings. I'm getting a little ahead of myself because we'll find that right here in Mark's account. If you would, look at verse 33 in Mark chapter 15. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. 
The first thing we notice here in Mark's account of this fourth word is Mark tells us about darkness. If you can picture it for a moment, it's the sixth hour, about noon. The way that they counted their hours at a time, by the way, is that they started counting at sunup, which roughly six in the morning. And so you count from six in the morning, six hours, and that puts you right at noon. Jesus has been on the cross for three hours at this point. The taunts and the jeers from the religious leaders, from the soldiers, from the crowd, they have been merciless. They have been relentless this whole time. They mock this man who claimed to be from God and and who had a reputation for working miracles. Sarcastically, they call out, If you are the Son of God, then come down from the cross. Save yourself. And others call out, let God deliver him. For he said, I am the Son of God. (laughs) Let God help him. Well, this has been going on for three hours. And suddenly, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us, the lights go out. Can you imagine Darkness descends upon the whole land, the whole country, the whole nation. It just goes black. I have a feeling, the Scripture doesn't tell us, but I have a feeling that the insults came to an abrupt halt. I have a feeling that the crowd grew hushed. I have a feeling that many of them, you see, had begun to worry What is going on? I mean, I can't... I I would just think if I were there, it'd get my attention, freak me out. I mean, just last Thursday, just a couple of days ago, you may recall, we had rain move in and out and I was in my office and I... I noticed outside there was a wave of dark clouds that moved in and when they moved in, everything got darker. And I I realized as I was thinking about this, every time it gets darker, we pay attention, don't we? What's about to happen? Why did it just get darker? A year and a half ago, you remember, there was the Great American Eclipse. It passed right over us. Most of us had the opportunity to go outside and for a few minutes catch a glimpse of a total eclipse of the sun. What a sight that was to behold. Down there with my family, down with a lot of friends. We were down in Marthasville hanging out. And, and uh, you remember that wave of darkness just really got dark. And then it's gone. Something about darkness in the daytime gets our attention. This was not an eclipse. Some people have tried to say, well, that's what happened here, but... Many reasons it's not. One is simply eclipses are always brief. The maximum amount of time, I understand, is somewhere less than eight minutes that an eclipse can be at any spot. This was three hours. More more than that, it's Passover. Passover goes on a lunar uh, calendar. 
as all the Jewish calendar was, and it always was a full moon. Eclipses only happened with a new moon. This was not an eclipse. Well, we wonder how dark was it? Was it stormy dark like it was Thursday when clouds come over and it gets dark? And maybe the Scripture doesn't specifically say, but I look over in the Gospel of Luke, Luke's Gospel tells us this in his account. He says it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. That little phrase makes me think it didn't just get darker. If the sun's light fails, it quits. It's not the sun's light got dimmer. seems to me that it got really dark. Sounds like perhaps it might have been something similar to what God sent upon the nation of Egypt. You might recall back uh, when God uh, sent Moses to lead his people out of Egypt and God sent the plagues on Egypt. God said to Moses, he said that there may be a darkness over the land of Egypt uh, in Exodus chapter 10, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. I think that got their attention. Darkness that you can feel. Have you been in darkness that you can feel before? I have. Down in, down in caves when you turn out all the lights, you can just feel it. Perhaps this was that kind of darkness. Pitch darkness. Maybe not. There are few details here in the Scripture. We don't know exactly what happened. But the point is, what it's very clear about is some darkness descended on the land. It lasted for three hours and it was in the middle of the day. And it got their attention. Why did God send the darkness? Why did it occur? Again, the Gospels don't say. Perhaps we can speculate. But that's speculation. Perhaps it was just God getting their attention. A little wake-up call. You know, a little... (laughs) Hey guys, you've just made a big mistake. (laughs) Perhaps that was it. Perhaps it is the fact that in Scripture, sin is often pictured as... or or, uh, alongside of darkness in its description. And maybe this is is because Jesus is at this point, all the sin of the world is being put on Christ. And and so it just gets dark because the sin is being put on Jesus. Maybe that's it. Maybe it is empathy, some have suggested, that as the Creator is dying on the cross, as the one who is called, as uh, John chapter 8 and John chapter 9 says, He is the light of the world. That creation itself, just in sympathy and empathy for Christ, just goes dark. Perhaps that's it. Perhaps it is because in Scripture we find that the great day of the Lord, the day of God's great judgment on earth, is described frequently as the day of darkness and gloom. See Joel chapter 2, for example. That as God is pouring out His judgment on His Son, that it is the, the darkness of judgment. And it's picturing the day uh, ultimately of judgment upon the earth as well. It may be any of those. It may be all of those. It may be none of these. We'll find out when we get to heaven. Again, the 
simply what we know for certain is the Scripture says that day, in the middle of the day, it got dark. And for three hours, it remained dark. Verse 34, Mark chapter 15, we pick up the story. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? There was darkness and then Jesus breaks the silence. About the ninth hour, three in the afternoon, notice it doesn't just say that Jesus said. It doesn't say that Jesus weakly struggled. Critics scoff at this, but the Scripture says He cried with a loud voice. Literally, He shouted. And the critics say no one has a loud voice on a cross. Much less certainly not after six hours. But Jesus just isn't anyone. A miracle in itself. Jesus summons the strength. And He cries out, Eloi! Eloi! Lema! Sabachthani! Notice that Jesus' words are preserved here in Mark's Gospel, also in Matthew who records this as well. It's preserved in Aramaic. The language that Jesus and His disciples spoke, it was their birth tongue as it were. It's the language everyone spoke around in in Israel. To me, this speaks of how emotionally charged and how deeply significant Mark viewed these words to be. I think it's as Mark is saying, I don't want you just to read a translation of these words. I want you to hear the very words that Jesus spoke. And so He has written for us exactly what came from His lips. Just four words in Aramaic. These four words lead us to holy ground. Words of deep, heart-wrenched emotion coming from the lips of our Savior addressed to God. Words which defy our understanding fully. I do want to just point out two things that I think we can see from this Scripture about these four words from Christ. This saying. The first is that this is a cry of anguish, a cry of suffering. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Typically, when we think of the cross, we naturally but mistakenly tend to focus on Jesus' physical sufferings. After all, they are described for us, I think it's natural, they're described for us in the Scripture in some detail. We, we read about His beatings. We read about the mockings. We read about the, the scourging. We read about the, the difficulty as He tries to carry the cross that they require of Him and Him stumbling. And we, we read about the, Him being stripped and 
crucified and hanging there as they mock him. We read those in detail, but his and his physical sufferings, while I don't think any of us can really identify with crucifixion because none of us have been, yet at the same time we are all acquainted with pain. We have all hurt ourselves and felt great pain. And we read about these these sufferings that Jesus endured physically, we, we identify with those. And so I think it makes sense that that captures most of our attention when we think about the sufferings of Christ on the cross. But Jesus', Jesus greatest suffering on the cross is not physical, but rather it's spiritual. You may say, how do you know that, Pastor? Does the Scripture say that? And I would say, no, it doesn't. But I know it. See, what the Scripture does say is that Jesus, up until this point, has remained silent about His sufferings. All through the the beatings through the night, all through the, the crown of thorns, all through the humiliations, all through the scourging, all through the 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 walk to Calvary, all all through the the act of the the actual crucifixion, all through the initial suffering here on the cross physically, Jesus has remained silent, the scripture says. Like a lamb before his shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. The only words he has said to this point have not been about him, but about others. Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they do. This day you will be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. This is the first time Jesus has opened His mouth verbalizing, expressing pain, suffering. And I contend that after six hours on the cross and after all it has been through, this has nothing to do with physical suffering. It has everything to do with what has happened in this last few hours. Let me point out two things that the Scripture tells us about what has happened in this bit of time. The first is that hanging here on the cross, Jesus is suffering as our substitute. Now, this is not in our passage before us. But it doesn't need to be because it is all through the Scripture. Old Testament and New Testament attest to how Jesus has suffered for us on the cross in our place. The prophet Isaiah, writing 700 years before Christ, spoke of this day and of the sufferings of this servant of God. Isaiah writes, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have turned astray, gone astray. We have turned every one of us to His own way. But the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Jesus suffered on our behalf. He suffered for our sins. He was paying the price of our sins. 
In the book of Corinthians, it says, for, he, for our sake, He, that's God, made Him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Peter says something similar in his first letter, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. It was Jesus Himself who said this is why He came. He came to take our place, Mark 10.45, for even the Son of Man, Jesus speaking of Himself, came not to be served, but to serve, and here it is, to give His life a ransom for many. What Jesus was doing on the cross was He was suffering in our place, in our stead, bearing our guilt, bearing the penalty of our sin. We simply cannot imagine any of us what this entailed, what this meant, what Jesus experienced. What I know from Scripture is that every bit of guilt for every sin was laid upon Jesus. An ocean of putrid filth of sin was poured out upon Him. Everything from the smallest little white lie to the most heinous of atrocities, it all was put upon Him. He was stained with its guilt and the full wrath of God's holy fury towards sin was then unleashed upon Jesus. It was unleashed upon Him because of our sin with each and every sin having an eternal debt that must be paid for, while we simply cannot imagine what this entailed, what it must mean is that Jesus certainly suffered unimaginably as He paid the debt in our place. An eternal debt paid in an amount of time. Only Jesus could accomplish it. It required a sinless, guiltless man to be qualified to take anyone else's place. It required a man who could die. And it required God who could pay an infinite debt to be a sacrifice of infinite worth. Jesus is the only one the sinless man, fully man, and fully God. And on the cross, in these hours shrouded in the darkness, Jesus paid the sin. He paid for sin. There's a second aspect of His sufferings, obvious in His cry, in His words, that Jesus suffers being forsaken by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The word forsake means to abandon, to desert, to disown. And as our sin was laid upon Jesus, there was a break in the fellowship and the relationship between Father and Son. Something happened in those hours of darkness as Jesus hung on the, on the cross. And the relationship between the Father and Son was broken. F.F. F. Bruce in his book, 
The hard sayings of Jesus ranks this saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He ranks that as the number one hardest saying of Jesus. He wonders, how can God forsake God? Martin Luther decided to wrestle with this text. The Martin Luther, the great reformer, half a millennia, 500 years ago, wrestled with this text. He decided, I'm going to figure this out so I can explain it. And he went and studied that no matter how long it takes, he focused on it for days, went without food, went without sleep. Finally, he stood up and declared, he said, God forsaking God. Who can understand that? <laughs> exactly. None of us can. That leads some, you'll read some, there's all kinds of crazy thoughts out there. Many theologians and pastors trying to explain it away and say it didn't happen, it couldn't happen. God the Father could not forsake God the Son. And I say to say it means anything else is to belittle the words of Jesus Himself. It happened. Jesus' cry appears here as a question, but I don't think that it's a, a question that's looking for an answer. I say that because the night before this, you may recall... The night before this was in the Garden of Eden when he was arrested by the soldiers when they came to, to look for him. Jesus had been there that whole night wrestling in prayer with God over this very thing of knowing what's coming the next day. John writes, John chapter 18 verse 4, he says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, that's the soldiers, whom do you seek? My point is, John is saying exactly what we know. Jesus knew exactly what would happen to Him on the cross. And He knew exactly why. He didn't have to ask the question, why? Why? He knew. It is, as we already said, Jesus said, this is why I came. To give my life as a ransom for many. He knew what the cost was. He knew what everything, as John says, everything that would happen. His question then is not a question, but a graphic way of expressing the utter horror and the heartbreak of his suffering as he's forsaken and abandoned by the Father. Jesus' sufferings physically are immense. His sufferings spiritually are even greater. But if we stop there this morning, I think we miss a big part of what Jesus intends for us to see in these words. See, these words are a quote taken from Psalm 22. I'd encourage you now to take your Bibles and turn to the middle of the Bible, to the book of Psalms, and turn to Psalm 22. You'll find that these words from Jesus are a direct quote of Psalm 22, verse 1. There it is. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you were here a few weeks ago, you, you may remember that a few weeks ago we came here to Psalm 22. This psalm written by David a thousand years before Jesus. And this psalm, when you read it, what you discover is that it reads like you are standing and witnessing the scene at the cross. 
Verse 7 and 8 describe those who are there mocking Jesus even down to the words they say. Look in, in verse 8. It says, He trusts in the Lord. Let Him, the Lord, deliver Him. Exactly what we read in, the, in Mark's Gospel. You go down to verses 14 and 17. There's a description of crucifixion. Unmistakable and yet written before crucifixion was even invented. Verse 16 says, They have pierced My hands and My feet. Verse 18 says, They divide My garments among them, and for My clothing they cast lots. Exactly what we saw the soldiers do with Jesus' clothing in the Gospel accounts. In quoting this psalm, Jesus is using this psalm, verse 1, to express the very depths of emotion and feeling in His soul as He experiences the forsaking of the Father. But it is more than that. It is not just a cry of anguish. I believe, as I say here, this is also a cry of confidence. Two things in this psalm that I think make this plain to me. See, Jesus in quoting this psalm understands that the onlookers there, any of them who know this psalm, which by the way, any good Jew would know this by memory. And by quoting the first verse in his cry to God, any good Jew should be able to just go on from there and work through the psalm. And if they did, what they would discover is just those things we just read. And how could they not read that without looking around and going, oh, oh, it's what I'm seeing right here. This is all the worst moment in human history, by the way. God became a man. The promised Messiah was Emmanuel, God with us. God came among us and as John writes, we beheld His glory and then we cruelly killed Him. It is humankind's worst moment. History's worst moment. But this worst moment gets worse because now on the cross, God the Son is hanging there and He is abandoned by God the Father. This is truly the worst moment ever in the past or ever to come. But you see, in pointing us to this psalm, where we see that everything that is unfolding was written down a thousand years ahead, there's some good news. The good news is this. It's all in God's plan. As bad as this appears, this is going perfectly according to what God has planned. Psalm 22 is the script. And God wrote it out a thousand years before. I think that is part of Jesus' point here. Evil people have done their worst. But through it all, God is working His definite plan. 
The Apostle Peter in a sermon on the day of Pentecost, just a little shy of two months after this, will call attention to this very thing. God sent His Messiah. You killed Him. But He said, according to the foreknowledge and the definite plan of God. Evil people did their worst, but God is working through it. That's one thing I think that's here. There's another thing, though, in this psalm, if you continue reading, and that is we, we discover that not only is this going according to God's plan, but it is, according, it is accomplishing God's purpose, and it is going to bring about glory. Look at verse 24 in, in Psalm 22. For He, that's God, has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And He has not hidden His face from Him, but He has heard when He cried to Him. The psalmist is saying that God didn't forsake Him. He heard. And we say, but wait a minute. Jesus was forsaken by the Father. Jesus just said it. And Jesus was not rescued from the cross. He died there. He was not delivered from death. He died. And Jesus endured the wrath of God. He wasn't rescued from it. He endured it on the cross until every bit, every last bit of the debt of sin was paid. Indeed, Jesus was forsaken. He was abandoned, but He was not permanently abandoned. He was not permanently forsaken. When the last debt of sin was paid, and when Jesus yielded up His Spirit, we'll get there in a couple of weeks, and He died, He stepped immediately into the presence of God, into paradise. Even as He told the thief on the cross, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, today you will be with Me in paradise. Jesus was delivered from the cross into glory. And three days later, He was resurrected. Jesus was not ultimately, permanently forsaken. Just long enough to accomplish what God had intended. And the results of that, look at what psalm, the psalm goes on to say, verse 26 the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever and all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. If I may summarize just very briefly what I think he's saying is in essence this. People are going to come to God and get saved. People all over the world, all the ends of the earth, Exactly what we see has been the result of what God did on the cross through Jesus. He paid for the sins of the world because God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son so that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. The results of all of this has been a way that God paid for sin so that anyone who will trust in His Son, will be rescued, will be saved. The debt has been paid. It's a matter of receiving the payment, of accepting it, 
three quick applications as we finish this morning. The first is this. Is Jesus your Savior? That's why He came. That's why God sent Him. That's what He did on the cross was He paid for your sin. The Bible tells us that every one of us are sinners and, and the penalty of our sin is death. It is not just physical death. It is eternal separation from God. Hell. Jesus paid that eternal debt on the cross in these hours of suffering. The infinite God paid an infinite debt in a period of time. I don't understand it. It's beyond my pay grade. But God says it's done. He says all that's left is for you to believe in Him. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, that's that's the invitation He has to you this morning. Just to say, yes, Lord, I need a Savior. I believe Jesus died for me. Trust Him. A second application here is this. For all of us, we must remember the cost of our salvation. Never, ever, ever, ever forget. Never take it lightly. Let us remember just the tremendous cost that Jesus paid to rescue us from our sin. It will be among many things a powerful motivator for us to live holy and for us to serve Jesus. Lastly, sooner or later, every one of us tends to come to a place where our circumstances cause us to wonder, has God abandoned me? Why, God? Well, one thing that this teaches us as we see this experience of Christ, it helps us to understand exactly what the writer of Hebrews sets forth in Hebrews chapter 4 and on, in, and, and on actually in Hebrews. That we have a high priest who is not insensitive. He can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, our weaknesses, our problems and issues. He's experienced everything we have except sin. But he, he knows how we feel. And He is today in heaven as our great high priest interceding for us. Jesus was abandoned so that none of us ever need to be abandoned. We are not abandoned. Matter of fact, Hebrews goes on, Hebrews chapter 13, 5. It said, God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you because of Christ. So if you're here this morning and you're going through some of that time where you just are wondering, has God abandoned me? Understand this. The answer is no. If you've trusted in Him, you are the child of God and He will never leave you nor forsake you. And Jesus is your great high priest and He is interceding for you and He is with you and will get you through whatever you are in this morning. Aren't those marvelous things in those four little words? What wonderful truth. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this. If there is someone here this morning who has yet to put their faith in You, would even in this moment they say, Yes, Lord, I, I believe Jesus died for me. I receive Him as my Savior. Father, may we, each one of us, 
have a deeper appreciation for the great cost of our salvation. May it give us just a glimpse more into the sufferings of Jesus, the spiritual sufferings He endured on our behalf. And may that draw us close and and, uh, cement, glue our souls to You in devotion and in gratitude. And then, Father, may it move us and motivate us to share this good news with a lot of folks out there, a lost world who needs to hear there's a God who loves them and who has sent a Savior for them. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.